from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Elizabeth Gattorano on April 3, 2018. Elizabeth is the author of the book Waiting for the Sunrise, an incredible story of how she and her Rwandan husband, Fenwell, helped Fenwell's family escape the genocide and come to the United States and the fallout as a result. In the interview, Elizabeth talks about the ordeal and reads an excerpt from her account. She also reads an excerpt from her book in which she honestly assesses her own inherent racism. I started the interview by asking Elizabeth where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. Actually, I was born in Nome, Alaska, and my parents were medical missionaries. My dad was a doctor and my mother was a teacher. I was the youngest of seven. They had spent time in Congo during the war, like they gained their independence. So they got caught up in the war there in 1960. And then they eventually ended up in Nome, Alaska, which is pretty far up north near the Bering Sea. They were there for like seven years. And my dad was the only doctor there. He flew in and the existing doctor flew out and sort of left him there alone. (laughs) They finally, after seven years, for the sake of our education, I think they were really concerned. They decided to move back to the States, and they chose a little teeny rural town in Indiana, Walkerton, Indiana. And it was population about 2,000, very, very small farming community. I was one and a half when we settled there. The town really didn't have much diversity at all. And so for me, being the youngest, I wasn't exposed too much to any diversity. My parents were United Methodist, and so there was a church in town. I had a really rich religious background just because of my parents, and it was a part of our home. Sundays were a big day for us would walk to church. And so I grew up in the church and I I was very involved. I was like president of the youth group and had a very spiritual experience at one point in my teenage years. God has always been a part of my life, a personal relationship, I would say. So I'm speaking with Elizabeth Gattorano, author of the book, Waiting for the Sunrise, One Family Struggle Against Genocide and Racism. Elizabeth, what was your spiritual journey that led you to the Baha'i faith? It was really interesting growing up in this small town because the only influence I got was these Sunday afternoon meals, these dinners that my family would have, and the stories would start, and they would share stories of Africa, they would share stories of Alaska, There were so many diverse settings, and they were very inclusive. My mother was really involved in doing a lot of active 
in the civil rights movement when she was in college. She just had a love for Africa, a love for the Africans in particular. And growing up, she'd tell me Proverbs and Otatela, and she learned, had learned the language. So she just really immersed me in such a cultural diversity. I had it immersed in the home, but when I'd go out into my school and the community, there wasn't any. In a way, it protected me because I really didn't have any outside influences about race because no one talked about it. There was not even a need to talk about it. So as I got older, I started realizing later on in my life that people had very strong opinions, but I just never knew them because it never came up. We never had to really talk about it. I had this internal yearning. I hungered for diversity. Anytime I was exposed to it, it was almost as if I felt like parts of myself opened up. I can't explain it, but it was just something I internally longed for. When I got older and I started going to college, I started getting exposed more to diversity. So, you know, I always immersed myself with people of diverse backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. It just filled me. So then when I was in college doing my internship in social work, I was getting my bachelor's of science in social work. That's when I met Finwell, my husband, who is from Rwanda. When I met him, it was so fascinating because he started sharing these stories of Africa. And it just took me back to this place where I was sitting around as a child around my dining room table with my family and hearing stories from my mother. I felt like I found home. It was really weird. <laughs> we ended up marrying. I was very naive. I had no clue about what life, being a mixed couple, what we'd encounter. You hear about racism, but you're like, you really don't get it. I think when you're white, you just don't even really fathom what life is like having darker skin. After we had married, of course, right away, we had some pretty harsh reality checks. And we moved to Chicago, to Rogers Park, actually. We started in Rogers Park. And it wasn't until my brother came to visit, he was like, have you ever been to the Baha'i House of Worship? I was like, what? And he says, no, it's just right down the street from you. So he and his wife at the time took us to the Baha'i House of Worship. And it was just like, I can't explain it. I walked up the steps. I studied the structure. I saw all the religious symbols etched in the structure. Then we went to see the film. And I was sitting there. And I remember turning to my brother and saying, this sounds so right to me. Elizabeth, when you say the film, what are you referring to? There was a film about progressive revelation. Progressive revelation is this continuation of every religion. It starts with Adam. So every thousand years, a new manifestation or prophet is sent to give us guidance 
so each one actually builds on the other. And so it's progressive in the fact that each prophet ends up building on what was taught by the previous prophet. So there's a continuation of all these prophets in Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, and the most current one is Baha'u'llah. And so it's this idea that's a string in, the, in events where you just, they build on each other and they really are one and the same, but they actually offer you more guidance as the world evolves and develops. So it was during this film that they were just pointing this whole progression out where each prophet came specifically to teach certain things and this, you know, a new one would come that I turned to my brother and I was like, wow, this makes sense. And, and Baha'u'llah, who is the prophet for today, is all about unity, unity through diversity and um, oneness of humanity and this whole notion of we're all interconnected and this notion of seeking truth, no matter if our truths are different it doesn't separate us at all, that we are still interconnected through that oneness of humanity. And so I had turned to him and I had said, this sounds so true. And he was so sweet. He just said, well, Christ isn't the center, though. It's not, he's not the center focus of it. That concerned him. It was 89 is when I went to the Baha'i House of Worship for the first time. And there was a campaign about racism. So they had this thing about racism across America, trying to educate. And there was all these T-shirts about unity and elimination of racism. And it was just fascinating. Finwell and I both bought shirts. For the first time, we almost felt like embraced. At that point, we had suffered so much in other areas that it was just such an affirmation at that time. We went home, wore the shirts, but then it wasn't until later on, I think it was 93, that we moved and we were at a garage sale and we actually met a young youth, a young girl who was at a garage sale and she noticed Finwell's accent and she immediately engaged and said, well, my parents had been in Africa and would you want to come down and have a meal? And it was so interesting because for Finwell, the idea that someone had reached out and instantly wanted to connect, he loved that. And the idea that they wanted to offer us food without any preparation, it's like, well, don't you want to wait a week? Don't you want to wait a couple days? And the fact that they just opened their doors and immediately had us come over, it was just, for one, it was something that we needed because we had no family here in the area. So we were, you know, really hungry for just friendship and family. And boy, that was just the most amazing moment was entering their home. They were so warm at the time we had two kids. And it was just such a sweet, sweet memory. Very, very warm. And it was then that I started realizing from art on the wall and messages that, oh, okay, you guys um, actually are Baha'is. And then we started in, to engage. Diana Carson is her name, dear, dear woman. And she began to teach me the faith. 
you know, I tried to find what was wrong with it. I really felt like I kept wanting to find the flaw, which I guess it seemed too good to be true. When you look at the principles of the faith, there's one God seeking truth, which is really important to me. I think it's such a freeing principle on the fact that you can explore any religion and explore it and embrace it and just find what speaks to you and find your truth in it. So I really appreciate that. And then equality of men and women, the elimination of racism of any kind, universal language, uniting science and religion, which we've been sort of taught to separate the two, but then when you look at it, they're all so interconnected. So there's a lot of writings about uniting science and religion. And I think as you deepen on the faith and you deepen, you can see it all around you, how there isn't this separation that nowadays you tend to see in a lot of religions. Universal education for everyone. Everyone should have a right to an education. After I tried to figure out really what was wrong with the faith, really it spoke truth to me. I had a hard time finding flaws. There was a period where I even thought, okay, is this a cult? And I remember my mother helping me figure that out. And there's really no leaders, so to speak, no pastors, no one ordained to interpret the writings like in a conventional church. So she always said, if you have to go through someone else to learn the truth or have it interpreted to you. There's more room for being influenced in a negative way or whatever. I sort of ruled that out, that it wasn't a cult. You know, at first the writings were hard to understand, and then the more I read, the more it just spoke to me. It was a long time before I actually became a a Baha'i. I guess I found when I started really looking at the writings, it was maybe in 93, and I didn't become a Baha'i until 95. So I had a few years in there where I really, really did spend a lot of time just learning. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Catarano, author of the book, Waiting for the Sunrise, One Family's Struggle Against Genocide and Racism. As you've explained, Elizabeth, there was a long period of time in your spiritual travels from first finding out about the Baha'i faith until you actually accepted it. And I guess a lot had happened along the way. In your book, you describe how prejudice against your marriage followed you and your children wherever you went, often making your family a focus of racist discrimination and threats of violence at home and at work. My question is, how long did that endure? Having experienced so many episodes or so many events in our life that were pretty hard, we still live our life. I don't focus on it. I don't think, you know, we've ever really focused necessarily on race. You can't, if you want to move through life, you can't let it hold you up because it can be almost disempowering if you allow it. So I'm speaking with Elizabeth Gattarano, author of the book, Waiting for the Sunrise, One Family's Struggle Against Genocide and Racism. So Elizabeth, what inspired you to write this book? 
1994, the war in Rwanda, it was one of those visual wars where I think a lot of people saw it on TV. The history of Rwanda, it originally was colonized by Germany. And then during World War One, the League of Nations um, gave it to Belgium. And so when the Belgians came to sort of colonize Rwanda, they really focused on separating the country by tribes. So there was a Tutsi tribe, which had um, cattle, and they were a lot taller and thinner. And then the Hutus were more farmers, and they were more in the fields, and they were darker. Belgiums began to sort of give more power and authority to the Tutsis rather than the Hutus. And this brought great division. They would have the Tutsis implement taxes, and it was real harsh. And so they separated the country, and there was Twa, which is, or Pygmies, and they were there, and they kept to themselves, but it was mostly the Tutsis and the Hutus. It wasn't until 1960... Finally, the Belgians began to give more power to the Hutus. They started to give more of the responsibility. I think they had a lot of outside pressure to do so, where they started giving more. And the king at that point had actually passed. He had been poisoned in 1959. Once the Hutus gained a little bit more leverage and power, they started to retaliate on the Tutsis for how harshly they had been treated. And so that caused a lot of Tutsis to be killed, and a lot of them ended up leaving, and they fled to neighboring countries during the 1960s. And so it was that period where really the Hutus gained more control of the country. A lot of the Tutsis has left to neighboring Uganda in particular. Rwanda gained their independence in 62. But it wasn't until 19, around 1990 where a lot of the Tutsis who had fled the country, a lot of them were orphaned youth, young guys, boys. They began to collectively work on really going back to Rwanda, and they began to launch attacks. The Rwandan Patriotic Front, it's the RPF, the Tutsis that were actually outside of the country they formed. And so then during the 90s, they wanted to come back and have more equal power grounding. They wanted to be more a part of Rwanda. And there was this real push to have the Hutu government acknowledge them. And so there was a lot of these attacks that began to happen to the point where it was so disruptive that finally the president of Rwanda, the Hutu president of Rwanda, he began to want to figure out a way to find peace. And it was through the Arusha Accord, this peace agreement in 1993, that they began to look at to see if they couldn't bring a lot of the Tutsis who had fled back and have them a part of parliament and have some some rights um, and some decision-making power in the country. The president of Rwanda at that point had been to Tanzania to deal with this peace treaty, this Arusha Accord. Um, when it, the plane was coming back, it was gunned down. 
there had been a lot of propaganda, a lot of extremist Hutus that had really started this huge propaganda about attacking and killing Tutsis. The minute the plane went down, chaos broke out and it became just a bloodbath. They lost Oh, gosh, within I don't know how much time, just a month or so, over 800,000 Rwandans had died. And it was just the bloodiest. You know, they were attacked and killed mostly by machetes. And everyone was vulnerable. The thing you need to know, I think, about Rwanda is the fact that most of the country is mixed. There's Tutsis and there, there are Hutus, but a lot of intermarrying Finwell always would get angry because he doesn't even see any tribal division. They speak the same language. They have the same culture. You don't really even know who's who. And at the time the war took place, a lot of the Tutsis were actually outside of the country and they were trying to get back in. It was just such a difficult, difficult time because I think for Rwandans who were sitting back in other countries and for anyone watching It was just like, why can't someone intercede and try to help end this violence? It was just violent. No one really did. No countries really ever tried to stop it. They just let it go on. It was during that period where here Finwell's mom and dad, they had a a farm in a little village called Gitwe where he grew up. And he had other families, brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews. I think when it comes so close to home, you turn on the news and you see all this going on. And it's almost just unthinkable. I think for Fenwell, he was watching not only his country be attacked in such a graphic way. It was like his whole world was being shattered because he was losing classmates, family members, teachers, anybody who had an impact in his life at some form or another, it was just like his whole world was being crumbled down around him. And so it was a very, very highly emotional time to just feel the helplessness of sitting back and watching it and not having anything, anything we could do to stop it. And it was at that point where I was, remember I was sitting in the living room with Finwell one evening, and he was so grief-stricken, it was just unbearable. And I just started thinking, you know what? Let's get the family out. Because I had so many loving people kept, you know, affirming him and us, and what can we do to help? And I was, at, at that point, it became almost like, oh my gosh, we can do this. We can get the family out. People started giving us money and um, we started trying to raise money to get them out because every once in a while we could get a window like we'd get a call for some reason eventually the phone lines would work and then they wouldn't work so we could sort of get an idea of where people were and we could sort of track where they were and we'd have these random episodes of contact It was never consistent, and I'm sure probably the lines were being listened to. I have a feeling I started putting things together, and then I started trying to figure out how to get them refugee status. And so it was just this unraveling of events. You can read it in the book where we just start 
gradually seeing that this could actually work, this could happen, we could actually get them, them out of Rwanda. And we lost a lot of family members in the midst of it. Finwell's sister was shot the first few days of the war. You know, we began to lose people. So it was real and there was an urgency. So the book goes into how this happens and our journey through that process Eventually, it got to the point where we managed to get the 14 family family members out of Rwanda, and we sort of, they ex- fled in small groups, and so we would get various groups to Kenya, so that was where they ended up going, and then from Kenya, that is where we started really trying to get them out of Africa for them to come to the U.S., And so there was a lot of language barrier issues, a lot of health issues. His one sister was really ill. There was a nephew who had asthma. We had a diabetic. A lot of the medications they weren't able to get. And it finally, at one point, it was about Christmas in 94. It was Christmas. It was about a week before, I think, we finally realized that it was one of those things where I was just like, Finwell, you're going to have to go. You're just going to have to go to Kenya and get your family out. You know, we tried our best to fund because we were having to help them give them money to help them get food and help them go places. And so we had this little trickle of money. We would somehow wire them and get them money to get them from A to B and, and try to get them food so I'll never forget, we had a credit card Finwell had just applied for. We we really didn't have much money. And I just remember, he said, but Liz, how are we going to be able to go? We have no money. And I remember going to the, the drawer and looking at that credit card and thought, we can get you a ticket. And so it was that moment, I'll never forget studying at that, that credit card thinking, we're going we're gonna to have to send you. And we're, I found a way. <laughs> And so he ended up going and he spent, I don't know, three weeks, I think. It was quite a while. He managed my dad being a doctor. He managed to get medicines for them. So he was able to get the medicines there. And we got a lot of bags together and gifts and tried to do the best we could. And so he went over and he and a photographer friend, that we had living in Rogers Park, a dear friend who worked for the Sun-Times, actually, at the time, he offered to go with Finwell, he and his wife, so the three of them went. And it was nice to have that clearance, because he had his badge, his Sun-Time badge, and I think they sort of felt intimidated, like, when they saw it, they conducted themselves in a better way because he looked like he was a legitimate photographer, which he was, and he did take pictures and document. So that was really, it helped. It helped. And they eventually, before Finwell left, he had gotten them all refugee status and they had to wait, I think, a month or so to prepare to come here, but he managed to do it. So I'm speaking with Elizabeth Gattorano author of the book, Waiting for the Sunrise, One Family Struggle Against Genocide and Racism. There's an interesting aspect to this story, Elizabeth. You and Fenwell eventually found yourselves the targets of suspicion and hate from the very people that you had helped to save. Can you explain what happened there? So 
the family came and it was so interesting because I don't know if there was foreshadowing or not, but I remember there was an evening before they came that Finwell, I'll never forget, he turned to me and he said, let's make a pact, okay? We, we want to make a pact that we'll never regret. We'll never for, regret bringing them here. Because it was, we were, at the time, we were young. We, it was such a huge responsibility. We had three small children. We had other issues going on, you know, in our lives. And so when the family came, it was just an act of faith. World Relief helped, which was a godsend out of Wheaton, Illinois. They really helped us a lot. They were there to help us try to get them housing and jobs. But there was a myriad of ages. A lot of them were young adults in their early 20s. There was about four children, real young, seven. I think they all were seven, eight age. And they all had endured extreme trauma. I can't even explain the first night they arrived. One never spoke ever since the war began, the one that lost her mother. She just didn't speak. One had lost a baby with cholera and her husband. Two of them were child soldiers. You know, when I look back and I I remember we'd have these gatherings and they would sing these songs they would sing in the camps. And it was such a spiritual gathering. I can't even express to you how beautiful they were. But at the same time, they had so much trauma and they had endured so much that I knew being a social worker, you know, my degree in social work, I'm looking at all the family. I'm thinking they need so much help. And I don't think they're going to get the help that they need to even be able to debrief to deal and handle the grief and what they'd been through. One would rock a baby, a stuffed animal, all the time. There were toy guns and all the family members, all the adults would have armed themselves with toy guns. They'd just sit there and they'd have guns in their hands. And so, you know, them transitioning was hard. It was really difficult. And so what we found was eventually within a year, a year and a half, maybe two years, we began to see a shift in the group where they started to sort of accuse us of things, whether it was talking bad about somebody. It just grew into the point where they were, there was some focused attention on discrediting our character and really um, trying to bring division between Finwell and I. They began to alienate and isolate us. Any friendships Finwell would have, they'd be sabotaged by hearsay, always accusing, going to people saying that we've said vicious things about these people. It grew and it escalated to the point where We even had some of the family members come to us saying, you know, we really fear for you. There was specific things like I'd get miscellaneous mail that would discredit our marriage. And it was just amazing to what extent it was very, very directed. It got to the point where our character had been so tainted. The thing about Rwanda is 
it's a little country, but people are connected. So this was being shared in Europe, and this was being shared in Canada, and it was just a smear campaign, and that we never wanted them to come, that we tried to hold them back, that we really didn't want them to come. And so, you know, you don't know if it was survivor guilt and learning from other Rwandan families that have also helped other family members. This was sort of a common thread that it was not uncommon for the person that you sort of helped out to turn and then accuse you or discredit you. I began to hear more stories from other Rwandan family members that had similar situations, or you could hear stories of the the Hutu that tried to protect the Tutsi, and then the Tutsi accused them of war crimes. So there was a lot of hearsay, a lot of gossip, backbiting. And at that point, there was so much anxiety in the Rwandan community that if you were accused of war crimes, I think there was a lot of guilt from the U.S. that they didn't act quick enough So any allegation of war crimes, they would actually even investigate. They would, like, come to your house. And it was based only on this verbal hearsay kind of situation. For one thing I have to say is I love the family. I really, truly love them. It got to the point where I think for their health and for our health, we felt like the best thing was to create boundaries and to sort of set, sort of separate ourselves. And so we began to disconnect as a way to sort of diffuse the disunity. And not only did we begin to create boundaries and disconnect and disassociate and try to prevent us ourselves from being in the same kind of circles, Finwell was incredibly wise in the fact that he just said, Liz silences power, and we cannot go and defend ourselves. We have to really just be silent, because the more you defend yourself, the more you engage in that kind of back and forth, no one seems credible. And so we just really became very quiet. We didn't defend, and it was hard. It was hard when you're, you want to share the truth and you want to defend yourself, we opted just to sit back and just be silent. I have to say the publishing of the book really helped end a lot of the aggression from the family, I think. You know, I know they didn't handle it well. You know, I think it was hard for them. But I do think that they really stopped. It's been really wonderful for us as a family. I'd say eight years, we've had so much peace, and we wish them well, and you never know. Finwell talks to his sisters, but we've just tried to allow the space to heal us and heal them, and just to bring harmony. So I'm speaking with Elizabeth Gattarano author of the book, Waiting for the Sunrise, One Family Struggle Against Genocide and Racism. So you have picked out two excerpts to read from the book. And if you could explain for each one some background for why you picked this particular excerpt. You know, it was really hard. It was hard sort of picking through. I chose one that talks about the war 
in Rwanda, and then I'll, I can share the other one later. So I'm going to do the one about the war since we're talking about it. Just the backstory: Finwell's family, they had a farm in Gitwe. His mother was always this philanthropic woman who had orphans in her home. They always were taking care of sick people. In the 60s, they even, Finwell in the early 70s, he even remembers his parents hiding Tootsies during the period where there was a lot of unrest and there was a lot of attacks on Tootsies and a lot of killings. And he has these memories of them housing in the middle of the night, being a shelter for various people. And his dad is just the most noble, wonderful human being. I can't speak more about him. He was a, he ended up being a seven-day Adventist pastor, and he traveled village to village, and he preached in a suit, and he had a motorcycle. They joke he's known for his motorcycle. During the war, what eventually happened is everyone fled, and about 200 people ended up on this farm, and they housed and fed them, everyone. As the Hutu military came in, they didn't really disturb him, but later we'd find out it was actually the RPF that came in later on. They ended up killing everyone. There was another book that was written um, in French by someone who witnessed the event of those days on the farm when majority of the people, they were killed. So this passage is the morning before they came to kill everyone. The next day, at the break of dawn, Finwell's father started his motorcycle. He had managed to fasten some food tightly to the back fender. Though the original group of refugees had been split up, he still felt responsible for delivering them food. He wanted to make sure they knew that he and his wife weren't abandoning them just because they had been moved to another location. Later that morning, Emma, Francis, and his family began to hear screams piercing the air. Finwell's mother stood still and listened. It was clear that the sounds were coming from people screaming not too far away, and everyone on the farm began to panic and scurry to find a hiding place, but there was nowhere to run, and many of the people on the farm had no idea where to go or what to do. The RPF had entered the surrounding area and was now engaging in the Hutu militias in battle, although no one at the farm realized this at the time. Francis's family immediately ran to their cars and jumped into them. One of the boys started the engine and they began to pull away from the house. The doors of the car were open. Someone had managed to grab Armel and he kept insisting on trying to find a childhood friend, Emmerich, with whom he had been raised and went whom he had met at the camp when he first arrived. Francis had kept calling to his mother, Come on, Mama, we need to go. They, they will be here soon. But she kept repeating over and over, Not without your father. I will not go anywhere without my husband. Finwell's father had still not returned from feeding the other group. We cannot wait for Dad. We have to go, Francis shouted. But his mother refused to get in the car. Armel kept trying to be heard over the adult voices. Please let Emmerich come with us, please, he pleaded. No one was listening. The car was already crowded, and within moments, Armel was sitting inside the car as it pulled away from the house. It would be the last time Armel would see his childhood friend. 
Up the road, the group met Finwell's father on his motorcycle. He was headed back to the house. They pulled up beside him. Dad, get into the car, get in. We are leaving, Francis said firmly. Finwell's father shook his head, not without Mom. I will not go anywhere without her. There was no talking him into leaving. He would not leave his wife, and he also still thought he could somehow protect many of the Tutsis on the farm from the Hutu militia. Francis's family, along with Emma and her children, pulled away. Francis tried to look back from the window to get one last glimpse of his father, but he couldn't. The only sign of his father was the familiar roar of the motorcycle that grew fainter and fainter as the distance that separated them grew. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Catarano, author of the book Waiting for the Sunrise, One Family's Struggle Against Genocide and Racism. Why did you pick this passage? Yeah, you know, the reason I picked the passage, it's funny because there's so many good passages. <laughs> I really had a hard time, but I really picked this because she was a Tutsi and he was a Hutu. And it was for the love of each other that they were willing to die for one another by staying on that farm. It symbolizes the unity you know, here you have a country that has suffered historically for so long. And here there are two individuals that represent these two groups that have been pitted against each other for so many years. For the love of each other, they chose to fight and stay with each other, even if it risked them both dying. And I just think, wow, what a symbol. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Gattarano, author of the book Waiting for the Sunrise, One Family's Struggle Against Genocide and Racism. And so, Elizabeth, you have another passage for us? Yeah, now this one deals more with racism. In the book, I really highlight and shine light on both racism that we were engaged, you know, experiencing and events, and then at the same time, the war, and, you know, they both are affected by racism. When I look at Rwanda and I see colonization and what's been done to that country. But this one particular passage, I really, I'll read it to you and then I'll sort of explain why I chose it. During the rest of the school year, the public library became second home for Andre and me. Natalie often joined us on our trips to and from the library to pick up and drop off books. As the three of us were heading home from the library one afternoon, we passed a young black boy walking down the side of the street near our house. Immediately, I wondered what he was doing in our neighborhood. My mind leaped to con the conclusion that he was planning to steal or vandalize something. After these thoughts came into my head, I was struck by their injustice and a lump formed in my throat. As I turned into our driveway, I became nauseated, and I glanced at Andre, and I saw the young black boy I had just seen reflected in him. As the kids and I entered the house, Andre and Natalie ran to the television to catch the end of a show they frequently watched. They didn't notice me. I went into our living room, fell to my knees, and began to sob. I was scared that one day someone would falsely judge one of my sons, just like I had judged the boy. What if one day Andre and Nicholas were innocently walking down the street 
and someone passed by and had the same negative thoughts I just had for no justifiable reason. The thought that anyone would think less of my children simply because of the color of their skin made my heart ache. I was sickened by the racism that I had just found within me, and I didn't know what to do to remove it. It seemed that I, too, was not immune from the disease of racial prejudice. I could only make a pledge that I would try to identify my negative thoughts and weed them out as best as I could. I would now make an even greater effort to view each individual person in the world as a valuable and worthy of my love and respect. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Gattarano, author of the book Waiting for the Sunrise, One Family Struggle Against Genocide and Racism. So, Elizabeth, why did you pick that passage? Again, there were so many passages. I could have explained so many situations where I had to pull my kids out of school because they were being hurt, and I, at one point, homeschooled them. And there's so many different passages and events, these subtle events you know, that just add up with anyone who is black in America, I mean, or darker skin, it's just tough. But I wanted to bring this one up because I think so often there's this idea that if you accept this principle of, you know, elimination of prejudice of any kind, that you're not racist, that I think there's a mindset that if you embrace that principle or that ideology that safeguards you from literally participating in it. And I think racism is so unconscious. It's been in the fabric of our country. It's threads that we don't even know exist, that we're all impacted unconsciously to act out and participate in, that I think so frequently and all too often being white I don't think we understand how as much as you can have a pure heart and how much you don't have poor intentions that you are affected and you unconsciously engage in racism, whether you're aware of it or not. And I think it's really hard. I think only until we can honestly have the conversation And I know for whites, I think there's so much shame that it's really hard. For one, I don't think we understand how to heal it and what to do. But I think we have to move away from the shame and just acknowledge that we are are all immersed in this thing. We all are affected. We have to really have that honest conversation if we're going to heal it. And I guess I chose this because I think that you know, I'm willing to oust myself. I just want a safe environment where we can have that honest conversation, where we can look at ourselves and be okay with finding it and working on being better. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for sharing your incredible story with us. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you asked me. It's been really hard because, you know, I really didn't want to publish the book. It was Mm. not something I wanted to publish, and I had written it for my children. And then when I had the opportunity to publish it, and then I wanted to get out of it. It's a very raw story. If I had 
thought it was going to be seen by the public, I probably wouldn't have written it the way I wrote it. So you're getting a book that is really real, real raw. I really open myself up in the book and it's been a real journey. It was difficult releasing it for me and it's been hard talking about it. I'm really glad that you gave me that opportunity to honor the book, honor my family's story, my husband and his family and his parents' story. So I really am so grateful to have the opportunity. So thank you so much. You're welcome, Elizabeth. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Elizabeth Gattarano, author of the book Waiting for the Sunrise. You can find her book at BahaiBookstore.com. You can also visit her website at elizabethgatorano.com. Her last name is spelled G-A-T-O-R-A-N-O, elizabethgatorano.com. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Say I'm ashamed of mankind But I walk a thin line So I slip If something's in the way Yeah, I'm known to trip It's more than I can take All eyes on me And it's more than I can fake But at the end of the day Man, all that I can say is My prayers to the most great When I'm down for the count In it too deep When I live day to day Start to lose sleep When I don't go to class When I don't call fam back How long can I do this? How long will I last? I don't know, God, I don't know If I am even worthy of your grace anymore I'm waiting for a sign But everything is a sign In reality, the world is already mine I feel it in my veins, the fire When I cry out his name Oh my God, make my prayer a fire To burn away all my veils Make of my prayer a fire, a fire Kindle in my veins a fire, a fire My God, my adored one my king, my desire uh, I know that God gave each a purpose But we all gotta search way beneath the surface To find it, like trying to unearth a diamond That always appears with the most perfect timing So I start reading to find meaning And I see there is still something I am not seeing In between the lines, in my spirit, in the music In the very air that I'm breathing It's the reason I feel forced to write I recognize it inside me, that source of light Showing me that there is so much more to life Arming me with the fire because I got wars to fight I think about the breakers of the dawn And how they stood firm when the guns were drawn On the front lines, far from pawns Kings in their own right They're the ones who I call upon Whenever I lose faith 
I read the story of my name and realize it's never too late to believe And so shall my powers be I believed and he made a man out of me I feel it in my veins, the fire When I cry out his name Oh my God, make my prayer a fire To burn away all my veils Make of my prayer a fire, a fire Kindle in my veins, a fire, a fire My God, my adored one, my king my desire. Now when the swords flash, go forward. When the shafts fly, press on. Yeah. Now when the swords flash, go forward. When the shafts fly, press on. Press on. When the swords flash, go forward. Go forward. When the shafts fly, press on. Press on. When the swords flash, go forward. Go forward. When the shafts fly, press on. Press on. Existence. 
story. Be unto thee, be unto thee. And I was non-existent. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.